Do you own firearms? Did you know there's an easy way for you to let everyone around you quickly see whether your firearm is loaded or unloaded? Well, meet muzzlestick, barrel, and chamber flags. Muzzlestick, chamber, and barrel flags offer a quick way for anyone, whether they handle firearms or not, to quickly see the loaded or unloaded status of a firearm. And that could save lives. Are you one of the nearly 80% of firearms owners that keep a loaded gun out of the safe for personal protection, taking an extra safety precaution by using muzzle sticks, big, bright barrel and chamber flags will let everyone around your firearm know if it is loaded or unloaded. Muzzle stick does not recommend keeping a loaded firearm outside of a gun safe, but the reality is that some firearm owners do. Clearly marking a gun status communicates to others around that may or may not have firearm handling experience that it is something that they would not want to handle. Muzzle stick is not intended to replace the rules of firearm safety. However, their chamber and barrel flags give firearms rapid and clear identification, which could result in saved lives. It's time for you to do everything you can to be a safe and responsible firearms owners. Head over to muzzlestick.com. That's M-U-Z-L-S-T-I-K.com today to place your order. After all, we all only have but one life. Hello, ladies. Hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'm Jack Fowler, the host. Victor Davis Hanson is the star and the namesake, and he is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. You know that Hoover Institution is located on the campus of Stanford University, and Victor has a really important essay that he's written about not only Stanford, but the whole Silicon Valley area and, and its, gosh, its influence, its massive influence on America and the world. And we're going to get Victor's uh, thoughts on the piece he's written and let him elaborate on his themes. We'll do that right after these important messages. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. So, Victor, you know, 
we talk a lot about Stanford. We talk a lot about the Silicon Valley on this podcast. I don't think we talk about it enough almost because of the just the overwhelming influence this you know, few few square miles of uh, of our of Earth uh, have had on America and the and the culture and the world and the economy and well, I don't know what it hasn't had influence on. Victor, you've you've um, written a significant essay in the New Criterion, which is a uh, the, the scholarly. Uh, I'm going to say quarterly because it comes out ten times a year. I don't know what you call that uh, ten tenally, but Roger. Uh, Kimball is the editor of it, and I know you you write uh, essays for it on a somewhat regular basis. And this one in the new issue is titled Silicon Valley's Moral Bankruptcy on the Pestilence in Northern California. Victor, I'm, I have this thought of like the wild bunch at the end where you are just you've got the machine gun and it's going in every direction. Of course, I hope you don't get killed. Unlike the movie, you don't get killed. I, I don't know. I haven't, I'm going to go back to uh, work tonight and I don't know what's in store for me. But well, uh, this is this this uh, this stings wherever uh, it, you aim at. So tell us about this essay, why you wrote it and its major themes. Well, please. the theme, the theme is that there's three centers of power that run California. And that blueprint is what is fueling the National Democratic Party. The first is a lot of money and never more money than the history of civilization, $9 trillion to $10 trillion in Facebook and Twitter and old Twitter and, you know, Google or all of them. And they give 96% of their money to Democrats and their monopolies. I think Eric Schmidt once said that Google gobbles up one company a day. They buy out Instagram, whatever it is, they buy them out. And they either destroy them or they incorporate them depending on their efficacy. If they, their monopolies, if Parler after the January 6th things just is on a trajectory to get 20 million, then all of a sudden Apple bans it from the Apple App Store. Google bans it from the Play Store. Amazon cuts it off from, I guess, Amazon Web Services. It's a conspiracy to destroy it. And they have so much money. I mean, a partner's not going to sue them because they'll just tie them up in court. So they destroyed it. And they didn't want any, any competition. And they... Uh, you know, they had this revolving door. We saw it when he took off, when he when Elon Musk scraped off the wound, uh, the scab. We saw the ugly wound beneath, where you had you know James Baker coming in from the FBI, and you have all of these revolving door people from government that, when they get done with their liberal tenures, they go to work for Silicon Valley, and then they go back to work. So. When a Republican administration is in there, like Trump or earlier George Bush, they all say that they're, hey, you guys, you should be forced. You should give concessions. We're, we're the Carnegies. We're the Rockefellers of the 19th century. We're entrepreneurs. We create goods and services for Americans. Uh, we, are ex we, ex we export our goods. And then when the Democrats come in, they say, look, we give 96% of all our money to you, and it's an unlimited money machine, so don't screw with it. 
and that's why they they are immune from any type of uh, scrutiny, oversight. And I mentioned in the earlier broadcast, I mean, the CIA was the other government agency. Adam Schiff gets in. Adam Schiff calls up and says, you know what? I don't want this story getting out. And they they have that Hamilton 68 group that I think Bill Crystal is on it. John Podesta. We know now that they've tried to smother or extinguish over 600 politically incorrect accounts. You know, the thing about James Baker, he was an FBI uh, general counsel that was caught deeply up in the entire Steele dossier uh, misadventure and disinformation. He was contacting them about how to leak it. He just went over to Twitter and made $8 million. That's like 50 times more than he made at the FBI. And, you know, it's... Uh, I don't know. I, do you remember that woman, Lisa Jackson, that was the EPA under Obama? And she had that Richard Windsor fake name and she was <laughs> u- using it to praise herself. She she went right to Apple. Eric Eric Holder works for Airbnb. Right. Uh, Larry Summers, you know, I mean, that his chief of staff, I think, was Sheryl Sandberg, the uh, Facebook person. And of course, there's the Obamas, Netflix, Los Gatos, Netflix. So. I, I always quote Molly Ball, and she was the one that that just right. talked about the conspiracy and cabal of election of Silicon Valley and warping the election by putting you know hundreds of millions of dollars to absorb the work of the registrars in key uh, precincts. But uh, what I'm talking about is that where do they get their where do they get this image that they are flip-flop billionaires or tie-dye billionaires or they wear their baseball caps. I see these people walking around the Stanford campus or downtown. They're all multi-multi-millionaires, the second order of these grandees that work for these companies. But they have this, you know, they 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 jam uh, Whole Foods. They, they jump out of a Porsche, $150,000 Porsche with cutoffs and no socks. And... It was all created by whom? Stanford University. I mean, Fred Mc, Fred Terman was a great guy, and he had two great students, Hewitt and Packard. And between them, I mean, my God, Jack, they created the Stanford Research Institute, the Stanford Office of Technology, the Stanford Industrial Park, and that gave the impetus for the entire Silicon Valley electrical engineering startup. And it was wonderful in the beginning. It was kind of off the wall eccentrics. And there were people in the Silicon Valley Bank that were taking risks with up and coming people. It wasn't fossilized or ossified the way it is now. You know, as I said, nine or trillion to ten trillion dollars between Mountain View, Mineral Park, Cupertino and I guess Sunnyvale. And it was a very it was a very good thing that Stanford did. But then Stanford then. Uh, for the former president of Stanford, uh, I think he's chairman of the Google board and the current president is on, uh, he's, he came out of Genentech and Denali and all of these bio pharmaceutical companies, multi-million dollars. And he's under, uh, I should say alphabet, not Google, but he's under investigation right now at Stanford for I'm not I'm not going to wade in because I'm not a scientist and it would be unprofessional me to adjudicate the charges. But the Stanford Daily, 
who attacks him daily, their own president, you know, just says that in three pa- uh, three or four papers, he misled people by doctoring evidence. So he's under investigation, which makes it hard for him to weigh in. So you have this Stanford patina that says that we we protect Silicon Valley. We feed it our electrical engineers. We started it. We give it the image because there those people are on our boards. There's lots of Stanford boards and our Stanford people are on their boards and we're joined at the hip. Now, the problem is that this allowed this leftist patina academic scholarly patina allowed these people to be cutthroat buccaneers. And as I said, they swallow up companies, they destroy people, they monitor them on Twitter, whatever they do. They put $419 million into campaigns, but they're all nice people with flip-flops, cutoffs, and tie-dyes and reverse baseball caps. But Stanford then has its own problems, just like Silicon Valley, the real Stanford. We mentioned the president. They, they're they bragging, Jack, and I mentioned this before, that they only let in 22% of whites who make up 67 to 70% of the population. That's racist. And... They brag that they don't require the SAT, but if you choose to take the SAT, 60 to 70% of the rare, brilliant Americans that score a perfect score are rejected by Stanford. Now, they'll, they'll, they'll release that information, but they will not release the median SAT scores of those who cho- chose to take it and were admitted, which is, I think, telling. And uh, we've had these scandals, you know, the Bankman Freed, Freed, well, yeah, the Sam Bankman-Fried, he's he's under house arrest on the Stanford campus. His mother was a dark money bundler, uh, closed the gap for Silicon Valley grandees that gave their money to her. And then she funneled $60 million to radical candidates in the last election. The father was not just the father of Sam. He was intricately involved, according to the New York Times. They're being investigated for a transference of $16 million. He was bailed out. He had a $250 million bail. I thought, didn't 10% Jack? Isn't that the rule? If you get stuck with a DUI and they put you on a thousand dollars bail, you got to come up with a hundred bucks, right? Right. Well, why didn't he have to come up with $25 million? Uh, He didn't 25 million. He didn't. They got him out for, I don't know, what is a million? And and the former law dean and a professor put up 500 million. And then you have these graduates, the Stanford Daily, of course, left wing, but they have a whole litany this last week of all the scandals of former graduates. But the most notorious is Elizabeth Holmes Theranos. Remember her $9 billion? I think her last days of freedom are... While we're talking, she's she's heading to the slammer. Yeah, she's trying to get out of it. She's sentenced to, I think, 11 years in prison. 11 years, yeah. She got a a stay. She's not quite there, but I think she's going to be in prison. And I had the utmost respect for my colleague, George Schultz, but George Schultz was uh, a board member, and he got a lot of people affiliated with Hoover and Stanford onto that board. And that board, I think, was culpable because they gave the impression that this bankrupt Edison blood testing machine would give instant and comprehensive blood results. And there was a brilliant, courageous Stanford immunologist 
John Yanides, who, sh- who showed that it couldn't be possible, and they they ignored him. They ignored George Shultz's uh, grandson, who very courageously uh, prompted the Wall Street Journal investigations of the Rhino. Anyway, it collapsed. It was a complete uh, Ponzi scheme. People lost, I think, the Walton family, the DeVosses, the Murdoch. They lost billions. Her partner and paramour, Balwani, remember him? He was a fraud. He's facing prison. I think he's got a larger sentence. Then you go to the law school and we look at the law school with with Judge Duncan. And we look at um, Bankman Freed's, what, his girlfriend and the head of that crooked Alameda investment. Who's she? Carolyn Ellison. She's a Stanford person. His parents are Stanford professors, as I said. Person to bail him out is Stanford. Then we have... The uh, I don't know what you would call it, but the other Stanford professor, Michelle Dobner, she posted that she wanted uh, Johnny Depp to be what torn apart, eaten by you know (laughs) by rats. (laughs) She wanted his corpse to be eaten by rats. That's very fitting for Stan. Then we have the other one who attacked the other professor. I think her name was uh, Carlin. She attacked Baron Trump and said he wasn't a real Baron. And then we had the phony letter from the Stanford students who said the Federal Society was organizing a riot on campus. Of course, we had the disruption, as I said, of Judge Duncan. And it goes on and on and on. And so there you have it. And I haven't even mentioned the Chinese. We had a Chinese neuroscientist that was arrested on campus. She was... uh, She's disappeared, but she was a member of the People's Liberation Army. And then I think that the Trump administration fined them millions of dollars for not reporting gifts that were from companies that were connected with the Chinese government to Stanford. Then we had the euphemism. Remember that, Jack, the words that you can't use citizen, American, immigrant. That's that came from Stanford. So what I'm getting at is and then they went after, I should say, Scott Atlas, Jay Bhattacharya, John Ioannidis. It was very funny, wasn't it? And you had Michael Event in there, the Nobel Prize winner. They had the four most accomplished bioscientists, health care expert, policy experts, uh, immunologists, you name it. And what did they do? They they destroyed, tried to destroy their careers. A hundred people in the medical school called for Scott Atlas to basically you know, be nothing right. to get rid of his license. They went after him. They went after the, the faculty Senate went after him. They treated Jay very terribly. John, they treated terribly. And they should have been so proud of them because they were all proven right about the vaccinations and the quarantine. And uh, they were all. So what I'm getting at is that Stanford has imploded just like Silicon Valley's reputation is imploded. It's laying off people that today in the news, the Google president got, I don't know, hundreds of millions of dollars while he's laying off people. These are not off the wall uh, Steve Jobs or Hewitt Packard in their garage. These are hardcore monopolistic capitalists that are very self-centered and give millions of dollars to the Democratic Party million hundreds of millions for protection and they operate under the aegis of the stanford embryo they're connected with an umbilical cord to stanford that stanford feeds them graduates although i must say that you talk to some of them 
and they they'll tell you off the record, hey, man, Stanford took this woke stuff a little bit too seriously. Now, don't slow it down. We need your electrical engineers and we do not want people coming into our companies that were admitted without SAT scores. So they're starting to give their own test under the radar. But and then you get to the the final leg, you know, Nancy Pelosi, the political leg, the San Francisco political machine. And, it's, you know, it's Kamala Harris came out of there. Nancy Pelosi came out of there. Dianne Feinstein came out of there. Gavin Newsom came out of there. Barbara Boxer, the Chinese uh, lobbyist, registered lobbyist. Jerry Brown came out. Of there. Willie Brown. And they they control the state. It used to be the L.A. L.A. controlled the state. That was where the money was. Not anymore. The money is in the Northern California. It turned the Democratic Party into a one-party state. It runs the state, has super majorities in both houses of the legislature. There's not one Republican statewide official. And it, it controls, I think, all but 11 of the 52 congressional seats. And they all have Stanford connection. Dianne Feinstein, you know, um, has a Stanford connection. She's a Stanford graduate. Uh, Camilla Harris's dad is a professor, was a professor. I saw him a couple of times on campus, walked by. He's an economics professor. Jerry Brown's sister went to Stanford. They all have Stanford ties. And so, and what is their message? It's hard left. It's go to San Francisco and the legacy of all those politicians I, I mentioned is letting criminals out, highest per capita crime rate in the United States, homelessness, racial animosity, bankrupt schools, destro- trying to destroy meritocratic institutions like Lowell Heist. That's their legacy, the San Francisco model that high taxes, they're discussing reparations as we talk, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so you put them all together, big academia, big corporations that are left-wing Silicon Valley, big new democratic quasi-socialist politics. And that's what destroyed California. That in the demography of driving the middle class out, bringing the money in, uh, in tech, and then opening the borders wide open where you had 10 to 12 million impoverished people from Southern Mexico come that had to be assimilated, integrated, intermarried very quickly from a host that no longer believed in itself and, and went to the salad bowl instead of the, the melting pot. That is what I was trying to write about. Right. Victor, I have to, as a former publisher of National Review, I claim uh, some culpability of, for the failure of conservative organizations to have seen long ago what was going on and actually trying to uh, put an outpost there just to keep tabs on the, the lunacy. Not sure that it would. Well, of course, I mean, Hoover's there. Yes, but Hoover's affiliation with Hoover, Stanford is. Hoover, Stanford, it's growing. Our affiliation is growing with Stanford. Yeah. And it's the only irony is about all of this is that it's all predicated on these utopians never being subject to the consequences of their own ideology. But if you mandate 22% of the incoming class of 2026, is going to be so-called white. I guess we use the one drop rule of the old Confederacy. If you're not, if you have one drop of non-white blood, you can go into the mixed race category. But nevertheless, think of it. You take, I don't know, 15, 1600. I think there's 5,000, 6,000 undergraduates divided by four. It's not a lot, Jack. 15, 1200 people and 43,000 apply for those, you know. Right. So, 
it's they accept only about three percent. And in that white category, you've got to get professors, kids, administrators, kids, $10 million donors, kids and Silicon Valley grandee. And there's not enough spaces. So you get this weird phenomenon of all these left wing people, you know, who will tell you that their kid did everything perfectly, perfectly best SAT score, best GPA, best prep school, best everything. And they're not getting in. And what do you tell them? You created it. Wasn't me, wasn't our listeners. You created the system. Why didn't you think that your monster wouldn't come? You know, when you shocked him to life, he wouldn't come and and kill Dr. Frankenstein. So that's what's happened. And that will it change? I don't know. But I really think that I really admire Elon Musk because he is again, he tore off the scab and showed it how rotten it was. Right. And they when you. The next great challenge is artificial intelligence. And I would just like to warn everybody that the research and the money and the political cover is coming from that trifecta. Right. The, the, the greatest place of artificial research is Stanford University and Silicon Valley and the Bay Area politicians. And, you know, you say, well, Victor, they're Bay Area. Who gives a hell? Hey, Jerry Brown ran for president three times. He almost made it once. And Gavin Newsom may run for president. And we had two senators that were there for 30 years, Barbara Boxer and Dianne Feinstein. And the most powerful woman in the United States was Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House. The current second most powerful, now the most powerful woman in the world is Kamala Harris, San Francisco. So, yes, they have inordinate political clout from this failed city. Well, Victor, there's still some more Stanford uh, material to get your take on, and that has to do with the the law school's black students' reaction to the Duncan scandal, the Judge Duncan scandal. And we'll get your thoughts on that, Victor, right after these important messages. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Victor has a an official home on the Internet. It's the Blade of Perseus, and its web address is victorhanson.com. And you should be visiting that website regularly. Why? Because you'll find... Links to Victor's various appearances, 
these uh, archive of the podcast, links to his books, links to other articles he's written, and also links to articles he's written exclusively for the website. They're called Ultra Articles, and you can read them if you subscribe. If you're not subscribing, I don't know what's the matter with you if you're a Victor fan. But if you are a fan, you really should subscribe. It's $5 to stick your toe in the water. You're going to say, why didn't I do this sooner? Victor writes a number of pieces every week for the website. Uh, The current um, ultra pieces are on uh, a three-part series on wokeism and history. It's terrific stuff. That's re- that's what you regularly find there. So, VictorHanson.com for a full year, it's fifty dollars. Um, sign up today. Um, what else? Uh, your handle, Victor's handle on Twitter at vdhanson.com. If you're on Facebook, uh, check out VDH's Morning Cup. Sign up for that. There's also a, a Friends of uh, Associated Organization, friend, the Victor Davis Hanson Fan Club. It's a Facebook page. Not It's not official, but hey, why don't you check that out? So, Victor, um, there is a, a, a good piece in the Washington Free Beacon. Um, it's titled Stanford. Uh, it's by, uh, excuse me, uh, Aaron Sabarium. And uh, the headline, Stanford Law School's Black Students Group will no longer help law school help the law school recruit minority students in the wake of the Duncan apology. So the Duncan apology is the apology, the mealy-mouthed weirdo apology by the dean of the law school um, regarding how the DEI dean blew up that appearance by Judge Duncan that was already a hostile environment. And we've talked about this uh, before, but now... Now the the uh, black law students group is uh, law school students group is saying we're not going to we're not going to help recruit Victor your your, your thoughts on that I, I can't understand it it's uh, it's what do we call it it's Orwellian so Stanford University in general and the law school in particular is moving toward repertory admissions where people's demographic if they're considered victimized or marginalized people, they are being admitted in greater numbers than their demographics. And so Stanford is bending over backwards to allow non-traditional students from the African-American community to to come to Stanford Law School. So they are saying, well, we're not going to help you. And they even use the word free labor as if they were enslaved or something. We're not going to give our free labor to go out and recruit. Well, a lot of people would say, and then they're attacking the white alumni and the white this and the white. And a lot of people would say, okay, don't do it. It's not, it's a free country. If you think you don't want to help recruit people for repertory admissions and don't do it. And then they're angry about the doxing. They said, and they released, I guess this guy Arnold was one of the ringleaders of it. And they said, they released, well, that's exactly what they did. They published the pictures of the Federal Society with the sole intent of having people demonize the organizers who asked Judge Duncan. So then it turned around that some people did the same thing to them and they got outraged, outraged. And then it's it's all about the. The alumni and the the who 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 is Stanford Law School? Does, does these students really think that if you walk 
on and you put your toe your first year at Stanford Law School, then you own Stanford Law School because you happen to be there three years. You don't own Stanford Law School. Who owns Stanford Law School? The professors own it. The administrators own it. The alumni who went there and give money own it. The university in general own it. You don't own it. But this, the, what I'm getting at is we've created a situation of surrealism. These people are so narcissistic and self-infatuated. They think that they're the center of the universe. And they are saying, well, if we don't get our way and, and, and you stop apologizing. So they're saying basically that a federal judge came to speak. His speech was disrupted by many of them. The dean knew that in advance and wrote out a script pre-prepared to hijack the lecture. So when they, on cue, shouted him down, she stepped forward. And guess what, Jack? She read something she wrote prior to it. Her job is to follow the Stanford laws and rules, which prohibit what the students and what she did. She disrupted the lecture by taking it over. And then when this was a disaster nationwide, it hurt gifting and funding. Where do these students think, by the way, that their free scholarships come from? Do they think it comes from LeBron James or Oprah? No, it comes from a wide variety of people, not just black. It comes from all sorts of people. And to insult them and say, well, you know, you're just a bunch of all that. It's just it's insane. It's suicidal. So. They put her on leave, and I don't think she's going to return because how in the world could you have an administrator who's in charge of ensuring that the protocols that you've published are enforced, pre-planned and premeditated, trying to disrupt the, the lecture in concert with these students? And so in a sane world, Stanford would have looked at the situation they have a video. I don't think they've released it yet. Official videos. They videoed it all. And they would have said student A, B, C, D, E disrupted this lecture. They said that they hoped his daughters would be raped. They had placards that were obscene. They shouted him down. They insulted him. They said he couldn't get into. St they humiliated him. And they would said that's contrary. So you, 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 you are going to be expelled. Bye. See you later, alligator. And that would have been it. And then the other students, to that would have been, you know, as I said earlier, to encourage the others. The others would have said, uh oh, I wasn't there. You wait. You think everybody would have just said, we're walking out of Stanford University. No, they wouldn't. They would have gone to the dean and said, I wasn't there. I really didn't do it. I want, don't tell anybody. But he did it. That's how, that's how human nature works. And right. so instead of that, they were lucky. But instead of thinking they were lucky to have dodged the bullet, they're now saying, that even though our constituency is let in with consistently maybe not as competitive grades and test scores, and I think that's not an unfair generalization, we are not going to help to, do, to perpetuate that anymore. And some people are going to go, that's what you want to do. Go ahead. You know, if that's okay. what you want to do, go ahead. It's a free country, but don't whine about it. Right. And if you want to publish the pictures of people invited a with perfect legitimacy, invited a speaker, then the names of the people who disrupted it should be told to get over it. 
So what I'm getting at, we've we've created a whole pampered upper class of people on campus, and they are living in la la land. They don't understand. I just gave a talk down in the desert to a group of people. I won't mention the group, but it was very distinguished. There's about 400 people, and there were a lot of Stanford graduates and a lot of Stanford law graduates. You know what the the main question when the Q and A was on a topic I didn't talk about. Well, it was the Stanford Law School. And okay. I'm not giving any more money to that. That is disgrace. That's a disgrace to my entire legacy. I'm not doing, I'm not helping them. And they're getting calls nonstop about that. Because what is Stanford? I, I guess what I'm saying is the Ivy League and their systematic elimination of Jewish candidates that merit admission and Asians and what and this disruption that we saw at Yale Law School or that famous shouting. Remember those students surrounded that counselor at Yale and shouted her down. Right. And what we're seeing at the law school, they don't understand and the admissions policy. They think they're Harvard, Yale, Stanford forever. But the word is already getting out that the graduates that are coming out of those schools do not know the law. They're not right. competitive. The brand, in medical the brand sucks. The right? brand sucks. Yeah. It's just like the Coca-Cola. What was the name of that brand that they issued? Okay. Coke, new Coke, Coke one. Coke, I don't know. Yeah, nobody bought it. Right. And it almost destroyed their entire brand. It's like Budweiser. Oh, right. Yeah. And what the, and what they're doing is they are starting to graduate because admissions is synonymous with graduation. Right. Once you destroy criteria that you said were essential to your university, I didn't say it. You didn't say it. They cooked up the average mean SAT score to get you in. They cooked up the GPA and they did it for a reason because they wanted a level of intellectual excellence that their professors demanded. But once you destroy your own criteria and then you're saying to yourself, we have to, that's the beginning, not the end. That's the alpha. The omega is only let's water down the classes. Let's inflate the grades. Let's make graduation synonymous with admissions. And that way we can be diverse. Okay, and then you send the graduate out to where Silicon Valley, PR, HR, coding. Then they say, my God, this person did not get educated at Stanford. I'd rather have somebody from Georgia Tech. So right. that's happening already. And I don't think they understand the university doesn't understand that they've alienated not some idiot like Victor Hansen. They don't care about him, but they have alienated the upper upper professional bicoastal elite because they're not letting their children in. They're using racist criterion to eliminate people on the basis of their skin color. And they are tarnishing the university's reputation by shouting down judges or having anti-Semitic posters or et cetera, et cetera. Or they have students like this that rather than apologizing are demanding, demanding things and saying they're not going to go out and recruit students anymore, as if they have a God-given right to do that. Right. And, but, if, Victor, if they're right, like, you know, we're not going to recruit, let let the younger black kids go to another college. If this, if Stanford Law School is so damn racist, why don't they Why don't they go somewhere else that's not Stanford? It reminds me of something. I just checked um, out. Listen, there are six six historically black colleges 
and universities that have law schools, Howard and University District of Columbia, leave Stanford. Right? You're racist. I'm going to go to university. Why don't they address a fact? Stanford always bragged, Jack, that of all all the California law schools, that you graduated from Stanford and you just soared through the California bar, which had been adjusted, by the way, for diversity, equity, and inclusion. But nevertheless, you soared through. You know what the, the flunk rate was of the first try at the bar from a Stanford Law School student? It was about 4%. Mm. You know what it is now? It's, in 20? it's 14%. Wow. This is just the first year That's because this equity and equity admissions are starting to ripple through the system. Yeah. So six, six law schools in California had a higher first bar rate success than Stanford Law School did. They are Ouch. systematically dismantling it. And it's going to go down, 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 down unless they correct either their curriculum or their admissions policy. And people are looking at the people that come out of Harvard Law School. They look at Alvin Bragg, not because he's African-American, but because he's an idiot. He's incompetent. He's trying to indict a former president on a misdemeanor that is not valid because of the statute of limitation and enhance it into a felony in a jurisdiction, the federal prosecutorial uh, realm that he doesn't have any jurisdiction on. And only a person who wasn't educated in the law would come up with that idea. But he came from Harvard Law School. And so my point is that if they want to do this and they want to let people disrupt the campus, they're not going to retain that image anymore. They already haven't. And and I, I, you know, it's sort of like the Chevy brand in 1975 when Mm -hmm. the Japanese destroyed the American automobile and they had to completely reboot and start from scratch and they were able to pull it off. But I, I don't know if they can do that because of their woke ideology, but they would have to go back to a merit-based a merit-based admission and tough classes and know uh, the marginalized people this and the rhetoric of gender that and no sexual orientation helps you or hurts you and go back to that type and then have very difficult to finish. And uh, it, it's a great university, but unless they do that, they're going to be in big trouble. And we're going to have more of this because what happens is if you tell people that they are victimized and that you're guilty and you're culpable for their victimization collectively, and if you tell that student that we're going to adjust or modify or massage the traditional admission standards so that you as an underrepresented victim can come to this school, then it's very unrealistic to think that that person will not continue to play that role. They have to because they have been admitted in under circumstance. I'm not saying everybody was this way, but I think a lot of people have been and they are going because if they didn't if they didn't worry about diversity, equity, inclusion, they would just do it on merit and then whoever got in would be fine. But they don't do that. And so when you bring students that don't make their standards and then you have to adjust all the way down the line and that makes the student feel they don't like me. Uh, I got in, but I can't do the work. They'd owe me. And you end up with something like this. that Oh, we're not going to give our quote unquote free labor to uh, go recruit minority students for you. And 
I don't know if you ask the United States population, how many of you believe that race should be considered as a prime criteria for admittance to college? It's about 30%. I think African-Americans themselves don't favor it. So there's zero public support for it. So the public will say, I'm not saying I say it or you, Jack, but the public hears this story and they say promises, promises. You don't want to go recruit other students by traditional criteria, don't get into a law school like Stanford, and you want special criteria for their admittance for diversity, equity, inclusion, and now you say you're not going to help that promises, promises. Well, Victor, we have time for one other significant uh, topic, and it's going to be paganism. And we're going to get to that right after this final message. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irvin Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. So, by the way, Victor, before I talk about paganism, I, I do want to mention that uh, in New York, where you know I live in the metropolitan area here, that you mentioned Alvin, Alvin Bragg before, and uh, when he was running for office, his he had made promises not to prosecute theft uh, in order to establish racial equity and calling theft not theft but crimes of poverty crimes this is poverty. Um, yeah this is what we have uh, uh so, as so the, all uh, the looting we saw in May, june july august and september was looting flower bags looting chickens meat market i don't think so the ones that i saw they were and the yeah. smash and grabs yeah. in san francisco they seem to target they being the criminal iPhone sneakers, uh, luxury goods, handbags. I saw yes. that TikTok of that Asian woman's store that had luxury things that was attacked. So I don't think it's a crime that's driven by poverty, unless he means it in the generic sense that because people don't have the don't have the median income because there's mostly seventy five percent of these households have no male figure contributing to the income. Therefore, it creates a cynicism where they go loot sneakers and iPhones they don't need. I don't know what that what he means, but he doesn't know what he means either. Either, right. No. Well, Victor, on to paganism, my friend. So uh, I, I received uh, over the over the weekend um, the new issue of Commentary magazine, and the, the cover piece is, is titled The Return of Paganism, and it's by Elia Leibovitz, who who's a, I think editor at large for a an online journal a Jewish journal called Tablet or Tablet Magazine and uh, I think that's terrific I I in my Civil Thoughts newsletter I'm also often referring 
uh, people to check out pieces from Tablet. But the title is what is. Oh, yeah. Quite good. And this is this is not paganism is not atheism and. And this is uh, the case he's making here, and I'll read. I'll read a bit from here in a second. But it's uh, the backdrop is also a decline in religiosity in America. We've discussed this before a long time ago, but everyone knows like people who people uh, are in- increasingly uh, or decreasingly saying they belong to a faith. So less than fifty percent of Americans now call themselves Catholic or Protestant, etc. So you have this decline, we call them the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, and now you have this paganism. So, okay, paganism, what, 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 are, you, what are you talking about? Here's, in 1990, he writes in this essay, uh, scholars from Trinity College, they try to say, well, how many people are pagans? Well, 8,000 Americans. 2008, another study found 3,400, yeah, 340,000 Americans said yes, that they ascribed to paganism. And then um, a decade later, just a few years ago, Pew surveyed and found 1.5 million Americans professing (laughs) an array of pagan persuasions from Wicca to the Viking lore, making paganism one of the nation's fastest growing persuasions. Even pagan is recognized as a faith by the U.S. Army. Um, There are, this is, Look, we're not, I can't, I'm not going to, people get sick of me reading stuff. I'm not going to do it. But Victor, I think, um, I think it'd be interesting for referring people to it. Go check it out. Commentary magazine. But Victor, what is paganism? If we look back historically um, to the, to the ancients, to Rome uh, or the uh, ancient times, what was the role of Paganism, what were the beliefs in, in right. paganism? Yeah, a, a paganus was a paganus is a synonym for rusticus. It means a rustic a outlier, a country bumpkin. So when in the great period of Christian conversion in the fourth century AD that, you know, saw Constantine convert. And this was the period in the fifth century AD when you had Ambrose and, and Augustine. There were people who resisted, they had resisted Judaism and they had resisted Christianity. And who were these people? They were the people on the outliers. They were not in the cosmopolitan cities. They were not in the small suburbs. They were out in the countryside and they manifested their religiosity in two manifestations. One, they either went pre-Roman. In other words, they had tree worship or they went to nature worship or demonic worship, or they still worship the Roman pantheon, Jupiter, Juno, Mercury, etc., Mars, but they were not able to be converted. So they were called rustics, country bumpkins. And it was always a term of disparagement. And for all practical purposes, it was synonymous with polytheocratic idea polytheism, that it was many more than one god, whether it was nature gods or the old Olympian pantheon. And that was sort of, it. rustic sort of became uneducated disbeliever or uneducated uh, agnostic atheist or unnatural infidel or something like that. 
they did believe in something, but it wasn't Christian doctrine. And by the 19th century, when you look at religious uh, literature, pagan is, has become not just poly, people who believe in many gods, polytheism. It's anybody who is not really a Christian, because the idea came out of the Christian church is what I'm trying to say. In theory, it would apply to people who were outside the realm of Islam or Buddhism. They were out in the country and they just went, reverted to either a natural worship because they were in nature more so. In Germany, they, you know, tree worshipers, something like that. You can read Tacitus's uh, Germania to see some of the uh, pagan religious expressions in the uh, first century AD. But my point is that now it's completely an official term of disparagement, but as traditional religion loses its adherence and you have the rise of the green movement and get back to nature. Right. And, you know, Nietzsche said, you know, if you don't believe in God, you know, that you'll believe in a, a doctrine or an ideology or Chester's and basically reverberated that in a different formulation. But the point I'm making is that these people feel apparently when they lost their Christian God, they had some desire for trans, you know, transcendentalism or some type of to be transcendent. There had to be something other than this world. And so they looked around and they're pretty left wing and they don't like traditional Christian religion. And so they said, I'm going to start worshiping Earth and Mother right. Earth. There's a whole cult of matriarchal Mother Earth. You go to Crete today and there's sinners there because of the the supposed matriarchal or maternal aspects of Minoan pre-Olympian re religion of Semitic people who were the Cretans, no pun intended. But what I'm getting at is that uh, it's rising because, A, the church has not been able to reach out to this new generation for a variety of reasons, not, not necessarily any of their own. But more importantly, they they either do two things. They equate nature with religion, so they have natural gods, or they're nihilist. They don't like capitalism. They don't like Westernism. They don't like uh, Americanism. And so they go to the, the extreme of almost worshiping Satanism. That's big as well. Right. So... I guess it's going to continue and continue and continue until you have a great revival if Christianity is going to survive. But I, I think it was a mistake personally on the part of the Pope and other Protestant religious leaders, to, especially the archbishops at Canterbury, to give in to the woke revolution and to not defend the articles of faith. And, you, and today... As you know, there's men of the cloth that are on the vanguard of wokeism. They think that's the way to to appeal to people in the contemporary sense. And I I, I, yeah, I don't know that everyone knows the recent news, Victor. It should, doesn't get enough attention. But there is, you mentioned the Archbishop of Canterbury, that the uh, there's a, a, quite a fight going on now yeah. uh, with the, uh, between the African-based Anglicans and... Uh, which are conservative in nature, and the Church of England, which is now grants same-sex marriage. So it's a, it's uh, a symptom of affluence. 
it happened right. in Rome when people before before the advent of Christianity, there was a dissatisfaction with the Olympian gods among the elite, and they were bringing in Mithra and Eastern Persian Egyptian god gods and Sibylle, Euripides Bacchae even talks about it coming into Greece. So there was a there were these different cults from the east that appealed to bored, affluent Romans. And I think it's a paganism is a manifestation of affluence and luxury and leisure of a very postmodern society. And the people in Africa don't have that luxury. So they yeah. are much closer to the idea that the world is tragic and that this world cannot be the only thing there is. But when you are in Silicon Valley or you're on the Stanford campus and you're very wealthy and affluent, you think this is it. This is great. And I want it to be forever. But I I don't believe that there is anything after this. So I'm going to right. worship things that perpetuate like electric batteries <laughs> or right. electric yeah. cars or I'm going to worship things that make you know longevity or artificial right. intelligence, get my brain into a body forever or something. That's how they're talking about. It's interesting. There's nothing eschatological about the case that Leibovitz is making in his piece. It's about the here and now. And he he just he does pose a, and answers a question. Just what do pagans believe? The answer, while wonderfully complex, may be still to the following principle. Nothing is true. Everything is permitted. And he also goes on at length about how the paganism is very um uh, tribal and, and and makes comparisons to current politics. Uh, why did Lori Lightfoot lose the election? Not because she let chaos on the streets, but because she's a black woman. You know, so the tribal matters very much. You know, that was very funny when I was a 18 year old bumpkin from the farm. I I went to UC Santa Cruz, which at that day was pretty hard to get into, and I was on the waiting list, as I think I mentioned before. Because um, no, you've never mentioned that before. Oh yes! You, oh I, my! I, I, really? I was on the absolutely. I got into a lot of good schools, but I could Holy not get everybody macro. wanted to go there. Yeah, and I went there, and it was just it was paganism. It was just the height. It was the the tail end of the sixties, nineteen seventy one, and it was crazy. I walked down the dorm, and a guy's room had you know all the prices of drugs posted on the wall. I leaned against the wall and my hand went through the sheetrock where they'd been destroying the sheetrock and they put posters to hide it. My father went into the bathroom as he was unload, helping me unload and there was a guy and a girl taking a shower in the male's bathroom. Mm. It was just shocking. And one of the things that was so weird is there was a big redwood tree that, you know how they kind of split when they're very old? Yeah. And they have kind of a hollow. And there was a girl there that lived in there, or at least I don't think she really did. But during the day, she would climb in this little hollow and she would read her books and, you know, oh, had gosh. a portable typewriter or something. And I thought that she was indigent. So one day, I was right on the way out of Cal College and she was always in there. She was in one of my classes. So I had one of those cheap, it wasn't Walmart in those days, but those sweatshirt, you know, with a hoodie. Yeah. And I just happened to have an extra one. So I walked by and I stopped and I said, it's so cold in there and you're barefooted. And here's, here's this sweatshirt. You can keep it. It's brand new. I've never worn it. I promise. 
And she threw it back out at me and said, the tree warms me. I don't need help from you. I said, okay. <laughs> I did notice that as it got into January and the fog came in, it's very cold up there on the top of the hill. She did, she, uh, she didn't live there anymore, but I don't know if she had an electric heater in there or not. I wonder if that tree, uh, that little hole is still there in the tree. It was an act of treason. So she was worshiping tree. She was worshiping trees, and I know the person. I won't mention their names, but that person became very successful in a traditional career. Very well. You tell me offline because yeah. so I can uh, you can buttonhole. Well, hey, hey Victor, um, that's about all the the time we have, except. That we do thank our our listeners for listening, no matter what platform you're on, and those who who uh, listen through iTunes or, or uh, Apple can leave ratings zero to five stars, mostly five. It's a very highly rated show. Thank you for those who do that, and people leave comments also. On I'm going to read two today. One is uh, from uh, Tanana fifty seven, and it's titled "A Friend." And here's what he writes, or he or she. I've added VDH to my podcast library. He's become a friend in this crazy world. Since I live in California and have family in the Central Valley, he feels like a good neighbor who is staying when so many have left the neighborhood. Please stay and to be a beacon of sanity for the rest of us Californians. Tanana 57. Victor, stay as long as yeah, you have I, I enough think guns gonna, behind the walls. I, I, oh, I'll stay. I think you'll find me in the orchard one day with a beast. <laughs> bury me under the, my orchard. The, uh, bee, the bee did it. I always used to think it was some intruder would shoot me, you know, dumping stuff. But now I think it's going to be an angry bee. Wasp, where, where is thy sting? Uh, and then we have another one that's titled, Thank You, Professor Hansen. Thanks for reminding me that there are still many of us that don't agree with the current direction of our great country. As a proud tech school graduate, I'm often expanding my vocabulary while listening, as I sometimes have to pause the podcast to check the Internet for the meaning of a word, phrase or reference. I often feel as if I'm getting a college level education for free. I was so disappointed to discover after the fact that you had recently spoken in Oklahoma City, and I had missed it. Please keep blessing us with your wonderful insights. This is signed, Daryl OKC. How mean are you, Victor? <laughs> I, there was town a, and not, that, uh, that was a wonderful group in Oklahoma City. I'd spoken there once, but uh, it was... Um, it was a wonderful experience. I do the same thing. When I read, I always find words that I but I didn't know when I looked them up. Yeah. And, um, it's a, a good way to improve your vocabulary. I always try to use in, in columns three or four words that are not in common use, but no more than three or four, not to be ostentatious, just to see if the readers think that's a good word and they can look it up if they don't know it. You can get by oh. with that. I think that's good to have one or two or three that words that startle the reader and say, uh-oh, what does that mean? But if you do yeah. too many, it becomes, you know, self-congratulatory or narcissistic. Yeah. If you don't do any, it, there's no challenge. So you want to find a happy medium. Yeah. You and I discussed once, I don't know if we did it on a podcast, that uh, about 
not using the word I. And I wrote something, I'm saying I, but for uh, for National Review once about, um, it was a one-page piece. It was about seeing the Milky Way for the first time, which was really a profound thing for me. I always wanted to see it. You know, you live in the Bronx, you can't, you can barely see the moon with all the uh, light haze, et cetera. So, I did it purposely without the I. And you you were taught that also to not use I. Yeah, well, I was always taught that in grammar school, but then in composition. Uh, I had a wonderful teacher of composition. He just passed away, John Lynch. He was a brilliant teacher, and he would correct, just spend hours correcting grammar and syntax. That's why I, I didn't always get along with my thesis advisor, but he was a masterful uh, stylist. And I learned a lot from Michael Jameson, how to write. Yeah. And then Latin and Greek helped me a great deal. But I, I think it's important to, to be curious about words. I was watching, um, gosh, what was it? I think it was Endeavor, you know, that show about, maybe you don't, it's a British uh, mystery show. And, and, and I, uh, I, I like it a lot. All right. And, they have a really good character who's the pathologist. When they find the murder, he comes out and he uses a very arcane vocabulary. And the other day I was watching, I think it was that, but don't quote me on it. He used the word nidus, N-I-D-U-S. Hmm. And I thought, wow. What does nidus mean? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, but I knew it from Latin. Latin is a bird's nest, is a nidus. And, oh. then I, and I, I had a vague idea that it was a scientific term so if you i think if you have a bacterial infection or you say the wuhan i think you could say the wuhan lab was the nidus of the COVID. you know the origin or the embryo of where something starts but it wasn't like the like a bird's nest right but right. i never i never heard it used uh in a broader <laughs> sense so he was he was talking about this killed him and his but the nidus of of his pathologies was this entry wound, you know, and it was yeah. the, the core or the center of the start. Oh, very cool. Really, yeah. I thought, wow, it's, he couldn't mean a bird's nest, but I have never, I have never used that English word and I only know it through Latin. And I didn't realize it was a commonly used word. Well, you used a word today, and maybe we can close out, but you said resignation. And of course, we know what that word means. But, you know, that is a, uh, that to me would be a Victor Davis Hanson column with, that talks about the resignation mindset that we, that we have. Not we, we have, some of us want to fight and keep this great republic, but the resignation of the. That's a very good point elites. because uh, one of the things. I've been reading contemporary accounts of um, the fall of Constantinople by Byzantine Greeks, especially uh, Venetians. And uh, it's it's kind of sad because there's a sense that uh, people were resigned to its loss in the West. They didn't think they could help. There were a few brave people that went, but there was a sense that they would be converted or they just gave up. That empire used to have 25 million people. And by the hmm. time it fell, there was only 50. And the city had a million. It was only 50,000. And the empire was probably no more than a million and a half or two million. So what happened to them? A lot of them were resigned. They just thought, you know what? We're in Anatolia. We're Westerners. The Roman Empire was here years ago. But now the Seljuk Turks have come in. It's, it's Asia. We're foreigners in a foreign land. And right. let's just either leave or let's convert. 
Doesn't that describe France in 1940? Also, I mean, was yeah, there a sense resigned. of You know, uh, we have more. They have more uh, powerful army, and yet they, yeah, Ma- they were- Mark Blo- Block, who was a great medieval historian, wrote while he was a prisoner of the German army, wrote a really brilliant little essay called "Strange Defeat." About and he was executed, I think, eleven days before the liberation. It was very tragic. He was an academic, uh. and he was in the resistance, and he tried to explain what happened between May 10th and June 25th, how the French army that had stopped the Germans at Verdun and elsewhere in World War I, that was the bulwark of the West, that was in the interwar period, had the ability to call up three and a half million people. It had better tanks and better planes than the Wehrmacht, and it should have held out, and why it collapsed in six weeks. And he talks about resignation, that they just... What's his name again, Victor? Mark What's, Bloch, B-L-O-C-H. Okay. Very famous medieval historian that wrote during the 30s. He was very young. I think he was in his mid-40s. But he wrote a great book. It's, an, it's not really a book. It's kind of a French impressionistic, kind of like Camus did once in a while. But it's right. it's a uh, essay, Strange Defeat. And it was basically that they were worn out by World War One, And the victors of World War One did not want a, re- a replay, and the losers, the Germans, very much did want a replay. And how ironic that was, that the humiliated, defeated Germans wanted to go to war again, and the victorious French would do almost anything not to go to war. Right. And even though they had superior weaponry, and they, with their reserves, and with the addition of third of a million British expeditionary forces, they outnumbered the Germans. And yet, they, they lost, they collapsed, and they were yeah. resigned to it. They just thought, we're not up to that. They had been teaching socialism. They had banned the mention of Verdun in many of the schools of the 1920s. The Dutch, for example, had banned the word of destroyer for a type of ship. They thought that that was too bellicose. It's really similar to ourselves. I don't think we have any idea what Europe was like between 1925 and, and 35, but it basically had given up. Yeah, and well, it was socialism. Socialism was part of it. Yeah, and this is very eerie because it's very similar to the current, the the collapse of the efficacy of the U.S. military is just really one of the most harrowing things I can think of. What happened in Afghanistan yeah. is just incomprehensible. And then uh, to hear that Russia and China have these hypersonic weapons and were and their satellite and all of these things that we find that. We're spending so much money and overhead and our budget's so huge, but other our enemies have weaponry that is as good or superior to ours. And there's no you mentioned that the autopsy of the Afghanistan debacle, and they don't even want to listen to the inspector general and admit that it was the great, most the greatest defeat in American history, really. Yeah. And I don't know how you ever recover. You just if I just hope that the next Republican president comes in and he looks at two-star, three-star, four-stars, and he looks for people who were in combat in Iraq and combat in Afghanistan and have no desire to go become a pundit or a corporate board member upon retirement. And all they are highly patriotic, and they want to win. And he makes right. them joint chief and, and, and just promotes them. And no wokeism, because that's destroying the military. Bing West for 
Ming West from Chief of Staff. All right, Victor. He's a good example. Yeah, I love Bing. I love him. Uh, My friend, thanks so much. You were terrific today, as you are all the time. Thanks, folks, for listening. We'll be back soon. Yeah, we'll be back with another episode of the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Bye-bye. 